I'm going to poll the former little boys in this room, I being a former little boy, now a grown man who sometimes acts like a little boy, but my boyhood years are well, 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 well behind me now. But I wonder if the other guys in the room did what I did when I was a little kid and I started first understanding that strength was a good thing, I would flex for my dad and ask him to feel my muscle. Did anybody else do that? I'm really feeling awkward in asking this question for the second time today. Should have learned something from the second lesson. I did. I grew up on stories of how strong my dad was, and he actually was a very naturally strong dude. So I thought, you know, if I'm going to be a gardener, I got to be strong. So as soon as I noticed as a little kid that I could flex my right arm and something would move, I would take it over to my dad and check it out, and he'd squeeze my flaccid little bicep. Oh, yeah, buddy, getting real strong, and it's just delightful. Every culture, whatever their concept is of it, every culture loves strength. It may be physical strength, it may be the strength of professional achievement, it may be the strength of status symbols. In America, we have all of those displays in strength, including muscular strength. If you just, next time you're at the you're at the magazine rack or on the end cap before you check out. You'll generally see on the cover of magazines, sports are not very fit, athletic, strong-looking people. Our culture is in love with strength and power in all kinds of different forms, including our cars. If a car has a strong engine, they mention it. And usually if it's really intended to be a, we have a name for those, a muscle car, they usually try to put some intimidating name on it just to let the consumer know what they're getting into. They have names like this, Viper, Challenger, okay? These are cars that'll make you, push you back into the seat, make you take notice. If a car doesn't have any of that, they don't even mention the engine, they just tell you that you're going to be very economical and help save the planet. <laughs> Tesla's trying to do both at once trying to help you save fuel, but also pressing you back in the seat. If you put the package on the Tesla, a friend of mine who has one tells me is called, have you heard this? Ludicrous mode. And he goes, I've got ludicrous mode on this. And I said, what is that? And the next thing I knew, I'm terrified, wondering whether this could be the end of good old Bruce Garner in a fiery death in this Tesla, because just for a second, he wanted me to know. And our whole culture is based on, in whatever dimension, we love strength. I experienced real strength as a flexing little boy who didn't have anything to flex. I experienced what real strength could do on the football field for the first time. I had been paired up in PE with kids who were even bigger nerds than I was, and that led to the false impression that I was a pretty good athlete. I was not. I was just in the right pool to compete against kids who were even more inept than I was for a brief time, and that led me to volunteer for things like football and wrestling. And for a while, I thought I was a pretty good football player until I met a guy named Ruben Tarango. Ruben Tarango was the best player in our league. He probably was the best player in our region. For all I know, he was the best nose guard in all of Mexico. The first time Ruben hit me, I experienced strength for the first time. 
If you've never felt it, it's a revelatory kind of experience. I actually thought I was going to die. I'd never felt any physical sensation like the one he, he backed up about five yards, took dead aim at me, and put his helmet directly in the center of my face mask. And, I mean, terrible things happened. Are you familiar with the term ragdoll? Okay, if you can imagine a ragdoll being thrown across a football field, that's what it looked like. I felt my neck actually stretching out as far as it could possibly go, apparently without breaking, and in midair, there really is. You have a near-death experience, you can think about a lot of things in a split second of time. And one of my thoughts was, this might actually be it. Like, this might be what death feels like. Thankfully, it wasn't. I just landed in a pile and, and laid there and gasped for a little while. I looked up or maybe woke up to the sound of him chuckling. He had both hands on his hips looking down at me, <laughs> and that's all. He just ran back to the huddle, and it's time to go again. I had a terrible time playing football is what I'm telling you folks. And it all had to do with the experience of strength. Now, the word you're after physical strength or financial strength, everybody loves it. And the fact that our culture uses strength in very predictable ways is, makes it very easy for us to miss what the Bible actually says about a strong, powerful Christian life. The question that Paul's going to answer for us this morning is, what exactly is the key to having a powerful Christian life which results in service to other people? That's the question. What is the key to a powerful Christian life and service to others? Because if you genuinely have a strong Christian life, it will always result in service to others. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and let's explore that question. If you remember the orientation of this chapter, Paul, for the last few chapters, particularly in chapter 11, has been talking about himself. He doesn't want to. You're going to see him speak of a man he knows here in the 12th chapter. And I'm going to explain to you why he lapses into this strange-sounding language. And it all has to do with the fact that Paul, against his own wishes, at the end of this very vulnerable letter, which he has spent all of this time explaining himself, vindicating himself, defending his integrity and his character against these false teachers he sarcastically calls the super apostles, Paul has been goaded, if you will, into putting his credentials down on the table. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, and remember this is all intended to answer the question, What's the key to a strong Christian life? He writes, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Paul has been explaining his credentials, and he says, I, I have to continue. There's one more thing I have to tell you. Verse 1, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. 
On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. If there's anyone qualified to tell you what a strong Christian, look, uh, Christian life looks like, it's the Apostle Paul. If anybody can explain power and achievement as a Christian, it's Paul. And the first thing Paul will tell you in answer to that question is this. Look again in verse 1 and look at it carefully. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to, what's that word? Visions and revelations of the Lord. In other words, Paul, against his own wishes, is going to say, because you've been so slow to believe me, because you've been so quick to listen to false teachers, because you've discredited my ministry, because you think that my suffering means that God's blessing has been removed from me, let me tell you something apparently Paul has not told anybody else. I had visions and I had revelations of the Lord, and then out of a seeming embarrassment, because he really doesn't want to talk about himself, he uses this really interesting literary device where he talks about a man he knew. Fourteen years ago, I knew a man who was caught up into the third heaven. In the biblical understanding, there's three heavens, the sky above us, space beyond that, and then what we think of as heaven or glory. Paul said, I knew a man who was caught up in the third heaven. And in verse, five, in verse 4, he says, He heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. So here's Paul's answer. Whatever the key is to a powerful Christian life and service, the first thing Paul wants you to know is, number one, it is not deep and personal revelations of God. Now just sit with that for a moment because there is a desire in every Christian's heart and some Christian churches and denominations and movements thrive on this very thing. They are continually inviting you into a deeper personal experience with Jesus. Often that experience is understood as mystical and private and known only to you. And to a certain degree, if you're going to have a personal relationship with any other person, that relationship to a certain degree is always private. The relationship I have with each one of my friends is known really only well to the two of us. Same with my wife, same with my children, that is our relationship. So there is a lot to recommend the view that if you are really in a personal friendship relationship with Jesus, if Jesus is your friend, your Lord, your God, your Savior, your Good Shepherd, that of course you can know Him more deeply. And that those visions and revelations of God mediated through Scripture, applied and explained by the Holy Spirit, might take you into knowledge of Him personally that you previously had not had. But Paul, who has revelations and visions of the Lord so extraordinary that he says in verse 4, things that cannot be told which man may not utter. In other words, this was so private that the Lord spoke to me and showed me things, but I can't talk about it. And I didn't even want to mention it in the first place. 
And that tells you something really important about your life with Jesus. Power is found in the Christian life, not in deep personal revelations of God. Those are precious, but they are not the point. If Jesus shows up in your life and teaches you things about himself, it is not the mere experience that is the point of him doing that for you. Because what Paul explains is what matters is not what we know, but who we become. In other words, the Christian who other people can see that we are. Look in verse 6. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. In other words, if I wanted to tell you all about this, and if I could, that wouldn't be foolish. It would be truthful. But, watch, I refrain from it. I don't talk about it. This is the first and only time Paul did talk about it, and he spoke about it as if it were happening to someone else. Why do you do that, Paul? I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. The point of Jesus showing you anything about himself, any insight into his word, any personal experience that you would have with him, which is always going to be spiritual and in some cases may feel to you mystical, the experience is never the point. The experience is that Jesus is trying to make you into something other than what you are. He's trying simply to make you as he is. The point of visions, the point of revelations, the point of worship, the point of prayer, the point of service, the point of Jesus coming beside you in a deeply personal and private way and teaching you things about himself always is to make you into something that you aren't before he did that. And it's always visible in the world, Paul says, something that can be seen in him or heard from him. So that gives me an application question for you right now. If you are a Christian, if you walk with Christ, does it show up in daily life? Do people experience it when they see you and when they hear you? Does the love of Christ walk with you wherever you go because you have become loving as He is? What about His truthfulness? Jesus said that He is truth. Do people experience you as truthful? What about his holiness? Isaiah had a vision of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6. And the fearsome, created, angelic beings around him, Isaiah reports, cried, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. Do people you experience, experience you as holy, in other words, set apart for God? Is there something noticeably different about your character, about the way you treat people, about the way you listen to people, about the way you conduct your life, about the way you act at school. This is the point of revelations of Jesus is to make you more like Jesus. But Paul says that along with the revelations also came a great deal of pain. Along with the revelations, God gave Paul pain. Look in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. 
That's one short verse Paul mentioned being conceited twice. Did you notice? You ever thought of the Apostle Paul as a proud man? If you haven't, evidently he would tell you it's because of what's happening here. Paul knew that his own experience with Christ was so extraordinary, so literally on another level, that if God had not granted, along with the visions, a great deal of pain, Paul said, it would have filled me up with pride. I would have become a conceited man. Sometimes we think of Paul as a superhuman who is fresh made and just like Jesus the moment he got saved, and Paul would be the first to tell you it's not true. Here, he's going to tell you about a struggle of unanswered prayer. In Philippians, he's going to tell you that he learned to be content. Here, he's going to tell you that this constant abiding pain, whatever it may be, that is constantly in his life is the thing he knows and apparently the only thing that could have kept him from being conceited. And let's just delve into that pain a little bit more. He said, it's a thorn was given me in the flesh. The Greek language that Paul is using here is very descriptive. It's like a spike driven into someone's body. It's a barb that has gone deep into them with hooks on the end to hang on. And whatever it is, he said he experienced that as a messenger of Satan to harass me. Now, just a little, a little more about this verse. When Paul says, a thorn was given me in the flesh... Greek scholars say that the particular Greek construction that Paul is using there is what New Testament scholars call, little geeky term for you, the divine passive. In other words, that though Paul didn't spell out the name of God and didn't use the name of God, they argue that what Paul intends to tell you is that the pain that he received in his life as a thorn in the flesh which he experienced as a messenger from Satan that was sent to harass him, was actually given to him by God. It wasn't an, actual, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't a matter of mere circumstance. It wasn't just one of those things that happened where we do not have an explanation. No, Paul says really that Jesus gave him two things at once. He gave him a deep, personal, mystic knowledge of Jesus that was available to no one else he told him not to talk about it, and it was so extraordinary and life-changing that Paul said, it would have made me conceited, but along with the revelation, Jesus gave me pain. And there's a hundred theories about what exactly it was, and a good friend here in the church asked me what I thought about it. Here's my scholarly conclusion. I don't know. <laughs> Why don't I know? Because Paul didn't choose to tell us it very well may have been these harassing false teachers that fo followed Paul his entire ministry, discrediting, criticizing, and throwing mud on every single thing Paul ever did. There is literally that nothing Paul could do, not suffer, not be in prison, not forego money, not go hungry, not suffer exposure and cold and near starvation. There was nothing he could do that would keep him above criticism. Maybe that's what it was. Whatever it was, I'll stick with Paul's personal decision not to know, not to tell us, but he said, I experienced it as a messenger, a spokesman, somebody who talks on behalf of the devil. 
And Jesus said, Satan is the father of lies, and the Bible tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. So I think what that meant, at least for Paul, is that he continually experienced that as harassing lies and doubts and accusations that were hurled against him and that bubbled up within his own spirit. And no sincere Christian can live long with Christ without knowing what that voice sounds like. You're not really a Christian. You're the same old guy. You're the same old gal you've always been. Nothing's changed about you. It's all phony. It's all fake. You think going to church changes you? Nothing good about you. That's one set of lies. I've got my own that are whispered into my ears. Whatever they were, Paul experienced them as pain, and the point is this. The pain was given to hold back pride and to make Paul rely on Jesus. Because pride is the great enemy of becoming who Jesus wants you to be and doing what Jesus wants you to do. Peter wrote elsewhere that all the things that pertain to life and godliness have already been granted to you. In other words, your heavenly Father loves you so much that He made you to be born again into His family. You have perfect spiritual DNA. One reason I was never going to be anything on the wrestling mat or the football team is because of my genetics. It's just not there. I could train all day. I'm never going to be that big. I'm never going to be that strong. I'm never going to be that fast. I don't have it in me. Spiritually, you do. You can be as holy. You can be as close to Christ. You can be as much like Christ as you want to be. The only thing standing in your way is what accompanies us always, including the Apostle Paul, apparently, It is your pride. Pride, the continual temptation to look to yourself and to rely on yourself is what will keep you from the spiritual development that Jesus wants and intends for you. Pride's a funny thing. It's so easy to see in others and so hard to see in ourselves. Have you noticed? My pastor, my predecessor in this pulpit was a great man. I wish all of you could have met him. He was very, very witty. He was the king of the one-liner. You've heard this. If you've been in our church for more than a couple years, his fav- one of his favorite sayings was this, I'm not much, but I'm all I ever think about. <laughs> That's how people live, continually thinking about ourselves. And it's laughable when pride shows up in the life of other people. You can walk away saying, oh, that guy's kind of stuck on himself. That guy thinks he's all that. One of the phrases I grew up on was this, he's not conceited, he's convinced. There's a subtle little dig there if you listen for it. I had one of the greatest examples and just personal expressions, and I've given my own, but one of the greatest and most remarkable expressions of pride I've ever encountered, I encountered where you often encounter them, at a wedding. I briefly befriended some people, and I don't know what happened to them. This is many years ago. They might have moved away. I'm not entirely sure. We lost touch. But I was friends with them just long enough to officiate a wedding. But not so good of friends to end, to end up at a nice table at the reception. I think I was at table 34, way in the back, which was fine because Jesus told us not to seek the good tables. What was funny about the table arrangement, and the reason I mention it is, I was at the table with people from their bank and the bride's ex-husband. I know, I didn't know you invited ex-spouses to weddings. That's a first. And I, frankly, I think that's cool. They must be cordial enough that I want you to be 
happy for me and maybe sad for him. I, I don't know how that all works, but <laughs> he was there, and the ex-husband had taken pains in his personal presentation to, I think they call it peacocking. He was just, he was letting people know that he was there. To give you a visual, this is a very dated musical reference, but if you can imagine what Rod Stewart looks like, Rod Stewart's kid brother, okay, was at the table sitting next to me. And he introduced himself as the ex-husband, and I thought, well, this is, this is fascinating. I love meeting people and talking to people about who they do, uh, what they do, and who they are. And I said, and, and what do you do? And he said, I'm an artist. And I said, well, that makes, makes perfect sense. He's taking pains to present himself in a very fashionable way. Put it like this, nobody's ever thought, I'm an artist. <laughs> taco connoisseur, maybe, but not an artist. And I am, by the way. If you need taco recommendations, let's talk after the service. But whatever, as Pastor Jim is continually saying, whatever you're into, that's what you're into. And I'm just fascinated. I'm actually meeting a professional artist who makes a living at art, which is extraordinarily hard to do for the first time in my life. And I said, well, that, that is really interesting. That must be really satisfying. He said, it is. There are only a few great artists in the world, and we all know each other. <laughs> See? I did what you did. I started welling up with laughter because I thought that's one of the greatest lines I've ever heard in my life, but thank God I'm using my pastoral people skills and I'm still making eye contact and right before I laugh, I realize he's dead serious. He 100% means that. And I said, well, that must be very rewarding. He said, it is. And we just sat there for a minute basking in the greatness, okay? <laughs> now, the reason I'm telling you the story is because that kind of self-awareness is hilarious. But the same pride that is in his heart is in my heart and in yours. You probably just have enough self-awareness not to say anything like that. Our culture is shot through with it. On the professional football field, the latest track, the latest trash talk I'm aware of when an athlete gets the better of another, he might stand up, point, and yell and say, I'm him. And in that moment, he was. But anybody who will ever has ever played sports will tell you, you're not him for long. Life has a way of slowing you down and cutting you down and taking you out. It's that momentary pride, that great deep joy in self that ruins us. And before I laugh too much at the artist, love that story as much as I do, I realize he just had the honesty to say clearly with his mouth out loud what he really thought of himself. Every person in the world that is not fully submitted to Christ at any given moment has that same proud self-reliance, notice me, notice that I can do this in our life. Here's why. If I need to remain important, Jesus never will be. If I exalt myself, then Jesus will not be exalted. If I have the continual need to look strong to the world, then Jesus will not be noticed. So what Paul has told us is that a deep personal revelation from God is not the key to power, but rather, verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. 
This, whatever was happening in Paul's life, was so extraordinarily painful that perhaps the greatest man of prayer, aside from Jesus himself, spoke to the Lord on the basis of their friendship, on the basis of Paul's deep knowledge of Christ. Please take this away from me. And I can imagine the reasoning that Paul gave. It's slowing me down. It's making me less useful. It's holding me back. It haunts me. I can't think straight. I can't pray well. You ever been disappointed because Jesus won't take the pain away? That was Paul's experience. Something that felt like a stake through his body. Lies, accusations, condemnation harassed him, haunted him. So he said, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And having given us that mountaintop experience, he steps back almost regretfully from saying what he just did. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. In other words, you shouldn't have questioned me. You should have thanked me. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. In other words, you should have known all along who I am. It should have been evident to you what kind of person I am. Paul here is almost regretful of speaking of these experiences because the lesson he wants to convey is this. The strength of the Christian life is not found even in deep, personal, true revelations of Jesus, but rather, number two, and here's the real answer, our weakness is the vessel that Jesus uses to show his strength. So wherever you feel the pain point, wherever you acknowledge the weakness, let me suggest to you that Jesus has placed that deliberately in your life to bring you to an end of yourself so that you can rest upon Him there and in every other area of your life. Because discipleship to Jesus, learning to be a Christian, following Jesus is learning to live on the strength of Jesus, not your own, and nobody does that naturally. We are so easily self-impressed. We are taught by nature, culture, and family to be self-reliant, and Paul has an entirely different message. He says that it is grace that saves and sustains us. We actually live on grace. Look at verse 9, Paul's answer for his desperation of being rescued from this dogging, haunting pain, the answer he got was this, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, that's a hard lesson, and that's why I earlier said I believe in prayer that I have a hard time accepting it because I ask for all kinds of things, but never pain. I ask for relief. But Paul's answer is a gospel answer. 
The power of the Christian life is grace. We live on grace, not on relief from problems, not on success, and not on spiritual victory. All of those things are good. All of those things are true. Those things, when granted, all come from God, but they are not the key to the Christian life. They all come from grace, but grace is the answer. Grace is what we are given. As Paul wrote to Timothy, his tear-stained disciple, who Paul was about to leave because Paul was about to be martyred, and he remembered Timothy's prayers, and he remembered how much encouragement and how much strength Timothy required from Paul. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Paul wrote to Timothy, you then, my child, read the whole verse with me, please. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Notice, it's not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps message. It's not a wipe your tears and get back in there. You do have to be strengthened. You do have to grow stronger. But the only way that you will do that is by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul had known this his whole life. Before Paul was fully in public ministry. A man was sent to commission him, to affirm him, Christian to Christian, of what Jesus had done in his life. And that man heard this message from the Lord in Acts chapter 9. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Read verse 16 with me, please. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. If you were in a commissioning ceremony, would you want that to be part of the speech? A few years ago, one of my sons commissioned as an officer into the U.S. military, and we had a rare privilege because one of the cadets' dads knew a man from his prior service. We got an actual American general to come out and give the commissioning ceremony. And I thought, oh my goodness, a general in charge of thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of infantrymen after a decade and a half of war, this is going to be the most terrifying speech my wife and I have ever heard. This guy's going to talk about blood and guts. He didn't. He was very funny. It's like Mr. Rogers in an army uniform. Very self-effacing, very calm, very encouraging. The main thing I remember he said to these young second lieutenants was, I look forward to your careers. Not your salaries, but your careers. I thought, my goodness, this man came all the way from Hawaii to flex on a bunch of 22-year-old college kids. This is amazing. We went out so happy, so encouraged. It might as well have been an invitation into third grade teaching. Not into, not into combat arms. Paul never had that kind of illusion. There was no happy talk. There was no joking in his commissioning ceremony. He was told from the very beginning, others were told about him, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. What does that have to do with you? Well, though you're not an apostle, perhaps what A.W. Tozer from a couple generations ago, his pastor in Chicago, said, it is doubtful whether God can use a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And nobody welcomes that pain. Nobody wants it. Not even the Apostle Paul. He actually asked for it to be removed 
But his lesson was, when he heard from Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, Paul said, therefore, if that's true, since that's true, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why, Paul? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Here's what Paul discovered. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Because when we acknowledge our weakness, then the strength of Jesus can actually show up in a way that can be seen. The weaker we are, the more clearly His strength can be shown. In other words, our weakness does not spell defeat. It actually announces opportunity. Your pain, your disappointment, your regret over the past, your fears for the future, all of those haunting, accusing things that may dog you are an invitation from Jesus to come closer, learn from Him, and let His strength replace your own. In other words, the key to a strong Christian life is the power of Christ shown in our weakness. Here's how Jesus explained it. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Read the last phrase with me, please. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, if because of your difficulties you ever find yourself saying, I can't, you're in a really good posture because you're right. And it may have taken all of that frustration, all of that difficulty, all of that unanswered prayer to make you realize something Jesus has always known, that you're exactly right and you can't. Here's how Paul explained it, when I am weak, then I am strong. When Jesus speaks about being the vine, he's using a very simple word picture. If the branches will stay in the vine, they will bear fruit. How much fruit, when, and how it comes in, that's all entirely up to the vine because the life is in the vine, not in the branch. But here's the thing, church. If you separate a branch from the vine, the branch becomes not a branch but a stick. And the only thing a stick can be used for is to beat people up and to start fires. So if you find yourself in these difficult days as someone who other people is experiencing as always giving people at least a verbal beating, or you notice that fire follows with you rather than the peace of Christ, consider that the answer might be that you have separated yourself from the vine, you're using your own strength, your own ability, your own agenda, pursuing your own purposes, and the answer might be to come back and rest in the vines so that the life and the fruit of Jesus will flow through you. Four simple lessons, one sentence each, to try to make this as practical as possible for you. First and most important, every one of us needs to replace our pride with humble dependence on Jesus. Pride is the enemy, and humility is the platform on which Jesus builds everything else. If you're full of yourself, there'll be no room left for Him. Number two, pain is only useful if it drives you to Jesus instead of self-reliance. When pain comes in, people will do all kinds of things to alleviate themselves of it. They'll turn to alcohol. They'll turn to pornography. They'll turn to success. They'll work harder. They'll make more money. They'll do all kinds of things, some very praiseworthy in our culture, others obviously destructive and self-destructive. 
None of those things will be good. Not the success, not the depravity, not the great achievement, not the colossal failure. None of that will matter. Only thing that matters is if the pain will drive you closer to Jesus instead of continuing your own path, whatever it may be. Third, the measure of your spiritual life is the person you are becoming, not your circumstances. Jesus can change your circumstances in an instant. The wind and the waves obey him. Everything around you in all of your circumstances, he can change in a moment. The real question, if you observe the lives of the first disciples, is not whether nature will obey Jesus, but whether the disciples will. He's after you. He wants to change you. And finally, true maturity accepts whatever God has for us as long as the power of Christ rests on us. Paul was not happy about his present circumstances, but he accepted them because along with the pain came the power of Christ. As Elizabeth Elliot famously said, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. So let's take a moment and pray together. If I can invite you to bow your head for a moment and just take a moment, if you know Christ, take a moment with him. And think about the pain point in your life. Think about the anxiety or the fear, the depression, the darkness. I don't know how that shows up for you. But that point, that fear, that pain point, that's precisely where Jesus can meet you to show you things about himself and make you into a person that you presently are not yet. He'll do that not through the pain, but the humility that comes with it. If you'll only turn to Him, if you'll give up on yourself and turn to Him, He'll change you. Every time. May not change your circumstances. He didn't for Paul. But He'll change you. You may experience what Paul said elsewhere was the peace that surpasses understanding. It's not based on circumstances based on the presence of the Lord. If you don't know Jesus, listen, it's all grace. If you're going to be saved from your sin, it's only going to be if you turn to Him humbly and acknowledge before Him that you cannot save yourself. Confess your need of Him. Confess your sin to Him. Tell Him what He already knows. Just acknowledge it and own it for yourself that you need a Savior, and He will save you. Lord Jesus, each one of us, including me and and my family, we're all walking with different burdens, different pain points. May they all point us back to you. I pray that all of us would be kept from the folly of greater self-determination and self-reliance, that we wouldn't turn to any of the things that offer relief on this earth, but that we would first and most turn to you. Experience, Lord, your saving, changing, affirming grace in our lives so that we would have your own life flowing through us so that when we, Lord, we acknowledge that we are weak, then, because of you, we will actually be strong. I ask this all because you love us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.